Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Good morning, church. Welcome to today's Cross and Corona podcast, a Sunday service for the sick and the sequestered and the separated. This is Pastor Brian coming to you well and in good health from the church office at 314 East Main. And today's audio service is a little longer than last week because we have more members of the church who called in to help us lead worship today. Thank you to everyone who sent feedback from last week's broadcast. Many of you reported back to me how restful, helpful, and maybe even a little fun it was to sit on a couch with a cup of coffee and listen in to our church service. And I'll tell you what, if you think this is fun, just wait till you hear what's in store for Easter Sunday. Stay tuned at the end of the service for a few quick announcements, and let's begin now with the words of the Apostle John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Good morning, everyone. Hope this message finds everyone well. This is Mike Hauser, and I'd like to begin our service today with a confession of sin. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy on us. Spare us all those who confess their faults. Restore all who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name, amen. Good morning, Epiphany. This is Sadie Arango. Our psalm for today is Psalm 130. Out of the deep I have called unto you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. O let your ears consider well the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, were to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who could abide it? For there is mercy with you, therefore you shall be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for him. In his word is my trust. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins. Good morning, Epiphany. This is Marilyn Couch, and our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 70. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table? but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am already to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, 
Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they and many others said things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chiefs, priests, and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the ways that we can trust that the Christian story is true, one of the things we can point to about the historical reality of the Bible, is the repeated insistence in the book, written by the disciples, that the disciples were kind of idiots. <laughs> and, and that's harsh language, I know, it, but it's not far off from the truth, right? That Jesus dies and rises again, and afterwards, the, the books about his life and death and resurrection were written by the people who witnessed it. And the people who witnessed it in the books, they don't present themselves in the books as heroes by any stretch. They present themselves as idiots. Uh, Partly, I think, to make Jesus look better in comparison, but also because, well, it's true. Um, After three years of ministry together, uh, as the end of Jesus' ministry draws near, we find the 12 disciples more specifically, 11 disciples and one guy who ran off to betray Jesus, that these 12 disciples have not grown much in their time with Jesus. Our reading today features a handful of failures on the part of the disciples, which will all go to highlight the loneliness by which Jesus will experience his coming passion. And I want to talk about those three failures right now. The first failure that we see in our reading today is an argument about greatness. Um, That our reading starts, we have this argument cataloged in the Gospel of Luke where the disciples are getting together and they're arguing amongst them which one of them is the best of the disciples, right? We have the the 12 disciples minus Judas because, uh, well, so it's 11 disciples and they're sitting around the table after the Last Supper and they're discussing who is the greatest, which in any generation, that conversation is just idiotic. It's idiotic in 2020, and it's the same way in the ancient Near East. And uh, this was actually a reading I focused on in my Monday Thursday sermon last year. And so, if you want an extended conversation about this particular argument, you can go to epiphanyligonier.org/sermons and listen to the sermon titled "Luke 22: Servant-Hearted." I don't think we need to belabor the point that when you sit around a table talking about how great you are in comparison to the the other people sitting around the table, things don't generally end up well for you. Um, Pride comes, as they say, before the fall, or pride comes before destruction, as is said in Proverbs chapter 16. The second great failure of our reading is this dangerous hubris that is floating around the table. Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded the disciples to sift them like wheat. 
Um, and it looks as if Jesus is saying this specifically to Peter. It's like, you know, hey, Peter, he's coming to sift you like wheat. But the you is actually plural in that verse. And so I'm going to draw upon my southern roots to help you understand the Greek in its fullest. Jesus says this in Brian's southern translation. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What's remarkable here is that Satan is looking to sift the disciples like wheat, which means he wants to go through this entire process of separating wheat kernels from chaff. That's the imagery. Uh, This was a similar request to what Satan wanted to do for Job in the Old Testament. He went to God and he said, hey, this Job guy only follows you because you've blessed him so much. Take away his family and his money and his livelihood. We'll see if Job doesn't just curse you and want to die as a result. And a normal, theologically informed and accurate response to news that Satan is after you would be something like this. Ah, Help! Please, God, no, not that. Do not give me the Job treatment. My life is great and it's all a gift. And if Satan got in the mix, it would fall apart. Please, God, remove me from this and forgive my sins. Show me where I need to work things out. We do not need to bring Satan into this relationship. That's a normal, appropriate, and spiritually healthy response. So what's Peter's response to the news that Satan is after him? Peter's response to this news is essentially this. Bring it on. What does he tell Jesus? Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. I mean, you cannot imagine the level of hubris for Peter to say, bring on the devil, I'm ready for it. I mean, what an idiot. And Jesus gets it, right? Um, He tells Peter, look, 12 hours from now, you're going to have denied me by three times. And that is exactly what's going to happen later on in the reading. And so the second failure is not just that Peter denies Jesus, but this whole confidence and hubris um, at the news that Satan is coming, the disciples say, well, Peter says at the very least, bring it on. Our third failure in this reading has to do with swords. Jesus says to his disciples, hey, remember the good old days when I sent you out with nothing, no sticks, no money, no swords, no sandals? Did you lack anything? And the disciples said, nothing, we we lacked nothing. Well, Jesus says, you're going to go out again this time, and it's going to be soon. And this time, you're not just going to be my sort of support team, my local itinerant ministry team, preparing the way for me to visit a village. We're talking about something that's much wider than just rural Israel. We're talking about ministry into exponentially more hostile territory where dusting off the feet, uh, the dirt of your feet is not going to be enough. So take your walking sticks and your knapsacks and your sandals, and this time bring a sword too. And the sword piece is interesting um, because Jesus has never advocated for violent revolution, and it seems as if he might be advocating for it here. He says, bring a sword. But in context of what happens in in Jesus' ministry later and and the rest of the context, um, I think the best way to understand this, after consulting a number of people way smarter than me, is to note that Jesus' words here are probably a figure of speech. 
And so if I go to you and I say, hey, listen, we've got this big important meeting and we need to bring in the big guns on this. So, um, you know, get ready for the meeting. Um, people are very surprised when you show up in this meeting with a bazooka or a rocket launcher, right? You have brought the big guns, but that is not what I meant. And Jesus' note about swords here is likely the same. It's not about violent revolution. It's a note that the disciples are going to experience in their coming years deeply violent resistance to their ministry, and they need to be prepared for it. The disciples respond to Jesus' words here. They say, look, we actually came prepared. We have two swords. And Jesus' response is not, oh, thank you for coming prepared. You brought two swords. Jesus' response is exasperation. It's a facepalm. He says, look, that's enough of that. And later on, when the, the crowds do come to arrest Jesus, the disciples try to put those swords in action. And you can hear Jesus bellowing in his response, no more of this. Because he does not want the sword to be used on his enemies. In fact, he heals the one injured enemy, and then he is led away to his own execution. And so that's three failures. And what strikes me about the disciples and their series of failures is that so much of uh, their understanding of discipleship has to do with performance. It's, it's watch me perform, Jesus. Watch me be the perfect disciple. Watch us all parlay ourselves into who is the greatest disciple. Watch us defend our master even when the odds are against us and we only have two swords. But so much of what the disciples want to do is prove themselves worthy of Jesus' discipleship or his mentorship, his teaching. They want to prove themselves worthy. And in their head, worthiness looks like bravery and strength and chutzpah. It looks like devotion. It looks like self-discipline. It looks like pandering almost. It's like they want to win a beauty contest or they want to be on a reality TV show. To quote 2010 Charlie Sheen, it looks like winning. But when put up comes to shut up, um, Jesus finds that these eager beavers are asleep. Jesus had, had, in our reading today, asked them to pray about not falling into temptation, but they fall asleep instead. And so when the time comes for Jesus to be arrested, the groggy disciples are left behind. With the exception, maybe, of Peter. He, he follows at a distance. But again, we remember Jesus' prophetic word. And three denials later, Peter himself leaves. He is weeping bitterly. And Jesus is left to undergo his passion by himself. It pains me sometimes to watch as Christians make the same mistake as the disciples when they confuse performance with real discipleship. And this is what we're really doing when we put Jesus fish on the bumpers of our cars, right? We're putting an outward display of our faith. We're putting that up, which may or may not actually indicate a real and lively faith on the inside. And I'm as guilty as the next person here, right? Um, I'm going to tell you a story that's rather embarrassing, and you can laugh at me, Um, that my life at one point was defined uh, by wearing uh, witty Christian t-shirts that you could buy from the Christian bookstore. And these t-shirts were terrible. They spoofed particularly popular brands of clothing with Christian-themed slogans. And so instead of like Abercrombie and Fitch, a very popular brand that I knew growing up, I had a t-shirt that said, a breadcrumb and fish. 
I know. I can hear you laughing at me all the way through the podcast. I can hear it now. And instead of Rock Aware, the fashion brand, I had a t-shirt that said Rock Aware, as if there existed a rock named Jesus and some people were not aware of him. However, I was aware of the rock. I was Rock Aware. Terrible. Terrible. I know. And this had little to do with what God was actually doing in my inner life at the time, right? God was certainly guiding me as a teenager, but it was about performing. It was about signaling to my audience that I had a devotion to Jesus. Here's the thing about audiences and performances. Whether it's the disciples, whether it's the the Jesus fish, whether it's me, um, there is never a relationship that could be built between a performer and the audience watching it. They may be able to a temporary bond that night, but lasting relationship, no way. Another embarrassing story. My first concert that I ever went to as a young adult um, was a concert performed by everyone's identity-challenged, uh, polka-playing spoof writer, Weird Al Yankovic. Again, I'm so embarrassing. And I shared that with a friend once, and his response was that his first concert was Bob Dylan. I was like, why have I ruined my life by telling uh, everyone and going to Weird Al as my first concert? Anyway, I went to go see Weird Al do a show. And guess what? (laughs) Um, I don't know Weird Al. Weird Al doesn't know me. He doesn't call me up and ask my opinion on his next parody song. We don't get together and jam on the guitar and the accordion or listen to records or write music together. As long as someone is in a performance state of mind, planning to succeed, putting on a show, signaling competence, and responding to audience feedback. As long as someone is in that state of mind, they're not going to be able to have a relationship. And you know this if you have two ears and a heart and you have listened to the 1970 Motown classic Tears of a Clown by Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson himself said that the song was inspired by the opera Pagliacci, the Italian opera, the one about the sad clown. Um, because he'd do the act, and he'd be up front, and he'd perform, and he could make the whole world laugh. Um, But inside, he's weeping because of his unfaithful lover. And Smokey Robinson was inspired to take that same idea and put it in the context of a singer who had to perform on stage, and everyone thinks they're great, but inside, he's lamenting his, his lost love. This is the second verse from the song. Now, if I appear to be carefree... It's only to camouflage my sadness. And honey, to shield my pride, I try to cover this hurt with a show of gladness. But don't let my show convince you that I've been happy since you, because I had to go. Oh, I need you so. Look, I'm hurt and I want you to know, for others I put on a show. Now there are some sad things known to man, but ain't too much sadder than the tears of a clown when there's no one around. It is, in fact, when we stop performing that relationships happen, and I can't stress that enough. It is a precondition to having a relationship with somebody that the performance piece has to end. And that's as much true with God as it is with anyone else. And I'm reminded of this moment from John chapter 4. Yes, we're in the Gospel of Luke, but I'm going to dip out and come right back where Jesus meets a woman at a well in the noonday hour. 
and she's not there with the, the rest of the women in town, and so it's pretty easy to deduce this telltale sign that she is either regarded as a sinner by the community, or that she actually is a sinner by the community, because she's been isolated and ostracized, and she's been forced to go to the well at the hottest part of the day. And the small talk between the two of these people are, are fascinating, because Jesus asks for water, and it starts this conversation, and Jesus invites this woman into a deeper relationship. Jesus says, let me tell you about living water. Let me tell you about eternal life. Let me tell you about the things that will make everything turn out well in your life. But the woman responds with a number of dodges. She, she performs, in fact. She's got political dodges about Jews and Samaritans. She's got theological dodges about Old Testament patriarchs. She's putting up a face to keep Jesus from learning her real secrets. She's performing. But those secrets are quickly exposed. Go get your husband, Jesus says knowingly. I have no husband, says the woman sheepishly. And then Jesus starts to meddle. He says, that's right. You don't have a husband. You have five ex-husbands, though, and the man you're with now is not your husband. The woman is clearly rattled. Well, I perceive you're a prophet, she says, and that's when the real conversation begins. In fact, the conversation ends with some of the most intimate and quiet moments that Jesus has with anyone. It's almost tender. He finally reveals himself to her in a way that he didn't for others. Because she says, look, I, I know the Messiah is going to come and settle all this right. And Jesus says, I, to sp I who speak to you am he. It's one of the clearest revelations of Jesus' vocation in the whole of the New Testament. He offers to her in himself the answer to all her questions. And to get there, he had to shut down the performance piece by piece that this woman had cultivated to hold outsiders at bay. So let me ask you something. What would it look like if you didn't feel like you had to perform for God? What would it look like to drop the performer audience dynamic with the king of heaven? A couple of thoughts and then we'll close. Um, you know you're moving from, from performing to relationship when you're uh, content and okay with confession. Um, acknowledging your weakness and failures is not something performers do. It's, it's actually a rule of public speaking not to do that. Um, if you're speaking publicly and you get up front and you start to share you know, a message of any sort, and you start with, you know, I'm sorry I have a cold today, or I have a sore throat, or you are, you know, apologies for my raspy voice, I'm getting over something. Like, nobody cares, first off, right? And second off, nobody came to hear you apologize. So give us your message and, and, and let us put it into consideration. Um, confession, when you do that, um, is an act of relationship and intimacy. And if you're publicly speaking, people don't want that. They want you to educate or communicate. They don't need to build an intimate relationship. And the reverse is absolutely true. That if you're comfortable confessing your sins and your failures and your weaknesses and your sins and everything in between, your faults, if you can confess that to God, you'll see a relationship start to build. You've moved from performing, needing to be a good disciple for God, to relationship, coming to God with your highs and your lows. A second way you'll know you're moving from performing to relationship is um, actually financial. Uh, you'll stop spending money. And in your personal life, right, you know that you're moving from a more comfortable zone with someone. You're moving to that place 
when you don't have to spend money to be with them, right? Um, you don't have to spend money. You don't have to meet at the coffee shop or meet at the restaurant. You meet at home. You don't have to go to the movies, right? You don't have to go play putt-putt. You can just walk around the block with someone, and that's all the excuse you need to be around them. Um, there's something about intimacy that redirects our focus away from our own performance into the gaze of another. And again, spending money is a way that we can actually put up barriers between ourselves and another person. It's another way we can perform. And from a Christian perspective, if you're moving from performer to friend of God, um, first off, you'll, you'll, you'll spend money, you'll give generously, but that's not the same as spending money, right? Um, I, I preach to myself here, right? A, a relationship with God, um, not a performance before God, means you know I don't have to buy witty Christian t-shirts all the time. I don't have to have Christian t-shirts in my wardrobe. And, um, you know, I won't need to go out and buy the latest and greatest Bible study book. I mean, that's fine if you want. And if you've got a Christian t-shirt that looks good on you, I mean, get it. Um, but you feel like your faith doesn't necessarily depend on the latest and greatest popular Christian fads. Um, you're not going to feel as pressured to spend money on Christian tchotchke, like mints with Bible verses on them, like breath mints with Bible verses on them. You won't need to buy them at the at the bookstore, at the Christian bookstore, and you won't need to pre-order every new Christian music CD that comes out, right? Because spending money is about acquiring something new, and acquiring new things is about performance. And, and it's the opposite of investing in something that's old and good, right? And when that older investment, when you're investing in the old, old story of Jesus' death and resurrection, you're not going to put that in a goodwill box, and you're not going to donate that uh, to the library six months later. And so that's the second way you can tell you're moving from performer to relationship is when you reevaluate your spending. And the third way you're, you move from being in, in a performance relationship to an actual relationship is your ability to handle criticism. If you're able to handle criticism well, it's a sign that you're able to be in a give-and-take relationship with someone and to make a change out of love for someone near and dear to you. But if you can't handle criticism well... Um, then you're invested in being thought of in a particular way, and that's performance, right? Um, that, that when someone comes to you and said you did A, B, C really well, but you did D, you could probably improve on that, and that hits you to the core, it means that you need to be thought of as doing A, B, C, and D well. And so if you are able to handle criticism thoughtfully and reflectfully, uh, reflectively, you're going to be fine. And when God is the one who is giving you the criticism, whether it's through the, the, the law or through a fellow Christian or through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, if you can handle that well, it's a sign that you value the relationship over the performance. Part of the gift of the Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ saw through the performances of his disciples. Um, pray that you won't be sifted by Satan. Pray you won't fall into temptation. He saw their hubris and wanted to correct that. And he saw through the performance of the mob that came to arrest him in our reading, right? What does Jesus say? Oh, look, a mob's coming to get me at night. Very creative, guys. Why, oh, why didn't you come and get me in the daytime when I was in the temple earlier? It would have saved you a walk all the way out here to the suburbs of the Mount of Olives. And when the Sanhedrin started to bring charges against Jesus at the end of our reading, are you the Christ, they ask, Jesus cuts right through it. He says, look, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And if I asked you your opinion on this matter, you wouldn't answer. It's as if Jesus is saying is he, he's in the space, like, let's cut through it all. 
We all know why we're here and how this is going in to end. Let's just get it over with. Um, there is no room for performance here with Jesus. I very intentionally used the word idiot a number of times today in our sermon. I hope you picked up on that. And it's a word today that's harsh and unforgiving. Um, and it's one that I use on the disciples, though, very intentionally. Do you know where the word uh, idiot comes from? Um, it comes from the Greek. And did you know that it, the word idiot is a word used in the New Testament, in fact? It's not a word in the ancient Greek that has the same harsh connotations like ours, but it wasn't exactly a compliment either. It, it was a word that implied an inferior, lesser class. So you had the military officers, and then you had the common soldiers, and they were referred to occasionally as the idiotes, the idiots. And then you had the masterful poet writers known for their beautiful poetry, and then you had the basic prose writers who were less, uh, less up the, the social ladder. They were the idiotes. And then you had the learned Jewish scholars, the educated elite in Acts chapter 4, listening to Peter and, and, uh, Peter and John preach Jesus' resurrection. And they deliberated among themselves about what to do about this resurrection, and they were amazed at the confidence of these untrained, uneducated lay theologians, the idiotes, the idiots. It seems as if God might actually have use for idiots after all. After he can get them to be finished performing, maybe they have something real to add to the kingdom of God. Again, there is no room for performance when it comes to Jesus. And at the end of the day, this is good news because Jesus sees through your performances. He sees through, um, as the kids say, your fronting and your posing to the you that you're afraid to show, the weak you, the hypocritical you, the you that you're embarrassed to show in public, the you that wouldn't be caught dead watching musicals but you're secretly whistling cabaret in the shower, or the you that would die if people found out that you have a secret affinity for Japanese animation or dime store romance novellas. Um, Jesus loves and died for the you that did the awful thing some years ago, but you still carry it around on your shoulders and in your chest, and it weighs you down day in and day out, and you're trying to be a better person and atone for what you've done, but you're not quite sure you're good enough. Jesus knows about your public statements of bravado against the coronavirus anxiety and how you're like, no, nah, this is no big deal. We're going to be fine, while you're secretly terrified Googling uh, late at night trying to figure out what you and your family are going to do. And Jesus knows about your public stand on the virtues of self-isolation and hand-washing, but Jesus also knows about the you who forgets to regularly sing happy birthday twice when you wash your hands in warm, soapy water. Jesus knows the you that you present to the outside world that you're performing for, and Jesus knows the real you, too. And friends, Jesus knows the real you that fell asleep when Jesus asked you to stay awake. The you that bragged how you'd always follow Jesus and take up your cross and go to death in prison, but denied him three times before sunrise. The you that got Jesus so wrong that you took up arms instead of laying down your life. That you, that is the you Jesus died for. Friends, Jesus has no time for your performance, and that's good news for all of us, because Jesus Christ is the savior of the Pagliacci's everywhere, full of grief when they are alone, but putting on a show for everyone around them when they're in public. Whatever your performance is, Jesus sees right through it. He closes the curtain, and he loves you nonetheless, 
even as we'll see in our upcoming Holy Week to death on the cross. Amen. Hi, this is Hayden, and this is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He, is, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under the Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated to the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Hello, Epiphany. This is Janice Gooder calling from sunny Florida. Our collect today is the collect for the fifth Sunday in Lent. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Good morning, Epiphany. This is Marcia Spiker. It's good to be with you today on this podcast. Would you pray with me, please? O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins. Banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name. Amen. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time. With one accord make our, to make our common supplications to you, and you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will grant their requests. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come, life everlasting. Amen. A few announcements for the church before we end our time together today. First, in case you didn't get the church email, I wanted to announce uh, to you through the podcast that Epiphany now has an option for online giving. You can go to epiphanyligonier.org slash giving to learn more. The Vestry chose PayPal as our online giving vendor, and so you can give online with your debit card or credit card without needing to sign up for a PayPal account. If you do sign up for a PayPal account, you can give through eCheck or ACH. Of course, we can still accept checks or cash donations, and since we aren't meeting in person, you can send those gifts and tithes to Epiphany's church office at 314 East Main Street here in Ligonier. 
Again, the website for more giving information is epiphanyligonier.org slash giving. Stay tuned for big news coming later this week in your emails. We have the return of Dennis Sweeney's egg sale to benefit our local chicken farm. We'll have more details for you on Monday for that. And plans for the most unique and maybe even the most memorable Easter Sunday you'll ever experience are coming together as well. Expect news around Wednesday for that. And if you haven't signed up for our church email newsletter, it's easy to do. Visit epiphanyligonier.org podcast and check out the sign-up form in the sidebar. And now as we close our time together this Sunday, hear this blessing. Friends, neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and remain with you always. Amen. Friends, all shall be well, all shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. Go in peace. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.